uh, a mentor of mine is a therapist, and uh, she's got a lot of good nuggets that she's uh, given over the years. And one of my favorites uh, pertains to relationships. And she says that uh, all the people she's ever known, all the people she's ever consulted with, uh, that she sees uh, that everyone struggles with one kind of relationship. They struggle with authorities, or they struggle with being an authority, or they struggle having friends. And the more that I think about it, the more I think she's right. And I think for most of us, we're naturals at one of these. We're probably mediocre at a second, and we're downright terrible at a third. So how would you classify yourself today? I think these things shift. They've shifted for me. There have been times where uh, it's been really hard for me to have an authority. That was more my problem than my authority's problem. There have been other times where I've had a hard time being an authority. And there's been a lot of my life where I've had a hard time with friendship. It's particularly true with being a pastor. Uh, I ran across this study. uh, It was done by the Lilly Endowment. Uh, Lilly, you you may know, is uh, the pharmaceutical company. It's in Indianapolis. And they have this huge charitable uh, wing of their organization. And they invested $84 million over 10 years to study and support the practices that allow Christian pastors in America to sustain excellence over the years. So what they did with the $84 million is they found 63 projects. And those 63 projects were across 25 different denominations and traditions. And they all found out the same thing. That relationships with peers is the key factor to pastoral longevity. Uh, this might sound shocking. Shocking because it's just so simple and elementary. But I think it's also true for non-pastors. I think everyone in our culture struggles with friendship. Why do we struggle like this? Well, I think we can ask a sociologist. Uh, one sociologist, his name is Robert Putnam. He put out a, a book 20 years ago called Bowling Alone. He's come out with two newer ones that are both, I'm sure, are good too. Uh, But in this Bowling Alone that came out 20 years ago, he does uh, decades of research on Americans' behavior. And what he comes to the conclusion of is that we're terribly disconnected. And he gives three reasons in his book. The first one is the pressure of time and money. All of us feel this pressure. But those who are under the most pressure, those who are most hurried have these characteristics. I want you to get your fingers out and count how many of these apply to you. There are people who work full-time and have an advanced degree. There are women. There are people between the ages of 25 and 54. And there are the parents of children, especially single parents. So how many of those did you check off? The more you checked off, the more harried you are. And the more harried you are, the more you might struggle with friendships. Because that's what his research finds. Another reason he gives is mobility. He says one in five of us move every year and two in five of us plan to move in the next five years. And the more likely you are to move, the less likely, less likely you are to engage in friendship. And the third one's easy. You probably already guess it. You got the pressures of time and money. You've got mobility and you've got technology. He put this out in 2000. 
Most of us didn't have the internet in 2000. We certainly didn't have a smartphone in 2000. And in this section on technology, he quotes T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot's a a famous American poet. And uh, he wrote this when TVs came out. He says, the TV is a medium of entertainment which permits millions of people to listen to the same joke at the same time and yet remain lonesome. What would he say about a smartphone? So you put these three things together and it's no wonder that we struggle with friendship. It's no wonder that we're isolated. And then you throw in this big thing, the big elephant in the room. You throw in the pandemic. And I think you could say that we live in a friendship desert. So what should we do? Well, as Christians, we look to the Bible. And we could look at a lot of places in the Bible. And one of the key places we can go is Proverbs. And Proverbs gives us some wonderful wisdom on friendship. And it says this. This is 17, verse 7. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. 18, verse 24 says, A man of many companions comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 27.6. Faithful are the wounds from a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 27.9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do you have one of those friends? I think for most of us this stuff sounds like the stuff of fairy tales. One of my favorite memes uh, is of Jesus and his disciples. And uh, the words on this meme say this. No one ever talks about the miracle of Jesus having 12 friends in his 30s. And it's only funny because it's true. So what should we do? (laughs) How do we recover? How do we live in this friendship desert? How do we get out of the friendship desert? Well, let's look at Luke 5, our passage tonight. We'll read verses 27 through 32. Uh, After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat? And drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. So here you got it. Jesus uh, has made some friends. They're tax collectors. And now Jesus joins them for a party. And there are some who are looking on this scene and they're frowning at the matter. And guess what? They're religious. And it's not so much that Jesus is partying that they have a problem with. What they have a problem with is who he's partying with. And if you look throughout the book of Luke, you'll find that this whole theme of Jesus' companions and other people's opinion about his companions, particularly the religious, is this common theme in the book of Luke. Luke seven thirty four, they say, look at him. Talking to Jesus, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Just a few verses later, verse 37, a different scene. And Jesus is with 
this kind of person that's described as a woman of the city, a sinner. We all know what that means. Verse 15, Jesus tells this string of parables about about a lost coin and a lost sheep. And then a lost son. At the very beginning of this whole string in verse 2, the setting for it is that there are these religious elite who grumble at Jesus. And they grumble because Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. That's verse 2. Luke 19. You get a story uh, from uh, about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. And guess what happened? Jesus found him. Jesus went to his house and Jesus ate with him. So what do you think the religious class did? They threw shade at him. So here you have it. Religious people stay away from Jesus. And Jesus wants to identify them with them so closely that he's going to eat with them every chance he gets. He enjoys being with him. They're comfortable with him. They're at ease with him. They feel his welcome. See, some, like these religious leaders, they want to keep the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes at arm's length where Jesus wants to pull them in. This whole business about God being friends with mankind, it sounds like something new maybe to you. You're thinking about the Old Testament where God is portrayed as a king, at least in your view. The only kind of relationship he seeks to have with his people is that of authority. And now the New Testament has this totally different story where Jesus wants, just wants to be everybody's homeboy. But this is, might be a common character. It might be one you're, you've been working with. It's one I, I, I certainly work with, at least unconsciously, most of the time. But it's unfair. See, Abraham is called Jesus' friend. Second Chronicles 20, verse 7 says that. Isaiah 41, 8. James 2, 23. Abraham, God's friend. Exodus 33, that Rachel read just a moment ago, says that the Lord spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Psalm 25, 14, says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and makes known his covenant to them. So there you have it. God's always sought friendship with his people. He knows the fall has left us lonely and he wants to heal our aloneness with his companionship. But there's a requirement on our part. There's something we've got to bring to the table. And Jesus says as much in verses 31 and 32 of our text. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus is looking for sick people. Jesus is looking for sinners. And of course, everyone's a sinner. The religious know this, but they only know it in a general kind of way. But the people that Jesus is looking for, they know they're sinners on a particular level. I mean, think about who he's with. The tax collectors, they know they're greedy. Nobody's got to tell them. Jesus doesn't have to tell them that. The prostitutes are committing adultery. Jesus doesn't have to tell them that. They know it. He knows the cure for their illness. It's repentance. 
So if you want to be friends with Jesus, you have to repent. You've got to look at yourself honestly. This is something that religious people are unwilling to do. They're just not prepared to be treated for something that they don't see as diseased. So if you can't say I'm sick, if you can't say I need help, if you can't say I cannot help myself, then here's what the great physician Jesus does. He doesn't treat you. And you won't be his friend. See, the problem is that neither me nor you want to repent. A British preacher from the past century, his name's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this about repentance. He said, you will never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. We can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we're sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. So what's your conception of God when it comes to being his friend? Make you uncomfortable? Does it sound a little weird, a little off? It might. Maybe God being distant comes natural. God being king comes natural. Maybe God being tired of you comes natural. But what Luke 5 tells us is that our sin draws Jesus to us. Let that sink in for a moment. Our sin draws Jesus to us. In fact, he's so drawn to our sin that he came for us, that he came and lived a whole life of suffering. He was born in a cattle stall, in a manger, to poor people. His parents fled fled to a foreign country because he was wanted to be killed by Herod. Then he grew up in obscurity. He had no benefits of being royalty. He's betrayed by his colleagues. He's ridiculed by his opponents. He died the death of, his, of a criminal. And then he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Why? Because it was your sin that got him out of heaven. He wanted to be your friend. That sounds scandalous to you. I did this whole search on friend in the Bible, trying to trace its theme. And the most surprising place I found was in Matthew 26. And Matthew 26 is about Jesus' arrest. And in verse 50, the term friend is used. It's used of Jesus talking to Judas. And here's what he said. To Judas, his betrayer, here's what he said. Friend, do what you came to do. If Jesus can call Judas his friend, he can call you his friend too. 
If you think you've blown it, you can't outdo Judas. And I'm positive if Judas would have come back, Jesus would have taken him. But Judas never came back. He was never healed. So will you come to the great physician today? Will you bring what you've been hiding into the light? And Jesus can handle it. He's not cool towards you. He's not going to betray you when you blow it. Your needs for companionship cannot overwhelm him. He walks with you every single moment. His friendship is constant. And here's what happens. When you experience Jesus in this way, you begin to interact with your people friends, with your potential people friends, very differently. So you've had your needs met by Jesus. And now you move towards other people, not needing them to be your friend. You move towards them out of love. And you begin to look for people in the same way Jesus looks for people. You're looking for repentant people too. You're looking for people who are ready to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Because you've received that same forgiveness. You're looking for people who are willing to admit they're broken and that they need Jesus to heal them because you've been healed by Jesus too. Here's what this does. You don't have superficial relationships anymore because now you have a friend who you know their sin and you know how Jesus has forgiven them of that particular sin. You have a friend that you know is broken. And you know that is been healed or is in the process of healing. And they know how you've sinned and how you're broken and how Jesus has forgiven you and how Jesus healed you. So you can't have superficial relationships anymore. But when Jesus is your friend, it also guards you, not just against superficiality, it also guards you from putting too much burden on someone else to be your forever friend. You no longer need someone. You just love them. And you know that Jesus alone can bear the load for being your forever friend. But this is risky business. It's risky business even if you're drawing strength and comfort from the friendship of Jesus. It's risky because it requires vulnerability on your part. Here's what C.S. Lewis said in Four Loves about vulnerability. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket... Safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. End quote. So here's what happens. When you got vulnerable with Jesus, you found out that you were accepted. You never knew that if you uncovered your shame, you never knew that if you uncovered your pain, that Jesus Jesus would accept you. 
But when you become friends with Jesus, you see that it's possible. So now you begin to move towards sick people, towards lost people, with empathy and humility because you know that Jesus can accept them too. You see what happened to Levi here? (laughs) The beginning of our passage, Jesus calls him. He experienced the kindness and welcome of Jesus. So the natural thing for him to do was for him to extend that to his sinner friends. Brother and sister, may we, as Hope Presbyterian Church, do the same. Let's pray. It seems like too good a news, Jesus, that you want to be friends with us. For some of us, we're comfortable with the idea of you being our king. We're okay with you being our savior. But this whole thing of friends seems hard uh, and difficult. And so, Lord, I pray that we, uh, like Levi, like his friends, like the woman in Luke 7, Lord, that we would come and, uh, Lord, that we would find that you don't reject us, but that you receive us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.